If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. I came up with the idea eating the landscape because when... You know, I was thinking about our our indigenous ancestral food ways, and they are not. It's not just about food. It's not just about nutrition. Eating the landscape is about this large interconnected matrix of our relationship to place. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Enrique Salmon, the author of Iwigara, The Kinship of Plants and People, as well as Eating the Landscape, which is a book focused on small-scale native farmers of the greater Southwest and their role in maintaining biocultural diversity. Enrique holds a PhD in anthropology from Arizona State University, and his dissertation was a study of how the bioregion of the Raramuri people of the Sierra Madres of Chihuahua, Mexico, influences their language and thought. Enrique has been a scholar in residence at the Heard Museum, on the board of directors of the Society of Ethnobiology, and has published several articles and chapters on indigenous ethnobotany, agriculture, nutrition, and traditional ecological knowledge. He teaches American Indian Studies in the Department of Ethnic Studies at Cal State University, East Bay, and is also their tribal liaison. I'm an indigenous person. I'm Raramuri. My people are about 70,000 strong down in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. 
in the what's known as the Barranco del Cobre, the Copper Canyon area. It's a canyon that's deeper than the Grand Canyon. And you can fit three Grand Canyons in it. It's so big. But I spent most of my life in when I was growing up in uh, Southern California, down by the border, and also in the American Southwest and back and forth into the Southwest and Mexico as well. I was raised kind of traditionally with a lot of the plant knowledge that I imagine we're going to be talking about. I didn't realize that it was anything special when I was growing up. It was just always sort of there, this kind of ways of healing that people in my family would employ because we couldn't afford to go to regular Western doctors and so on. Yeah, I'll stop there for now. I hope I imagine you have more questions about that. Yeah, I'm sure we'll dive into a lot of this further, but I appreciate this introduction. And to lay the grounds for the rest of this conversation, I would love for us to first explore what concentric ecology means, because that is a foundational part of yours and many other indigenous worldviews. And more specifically, I would love to hear how concentric ecology has different or shared underlying roots, ways of understanding or validating knowledge or ways of relating to the world compared to ecology stemming from Western science and environmentalism? Well, you know, concentric ecology is a concept that a friend and I came up with years ago in the late 90s, I suppose. There was another native friend of mine, his Pima, his name is Dennis Martinez, and he and I have been going back and forth about trying to figure out how, as indigenous people, we can more easily explain and reveal how indigenous peoples look at our relationships to our local ecosystems and landscapes. Because up until that point, nothing that people were writing about and speaking about was really conveying how Native peoples truly relate to these landscapes and our our sense of place. And so we were bantering back and forth, and I can't remember who said it first, but we said something, we mentioned about this concept about how we look at the land as a relative. Everything on the land, the animals, the plants, the rocks, the air, the water, everything is a direct relative to us. And not in this metaphorical, metaphysical sort of way, but truly we are related to all these things around us the same way as our human relatives are related to us. And it's like they are actually our kin. And that's where this notion of a kin-centric ecology, this kin-centric relationship to place for Native peoples emerged. And then I I published it in an Ecological Society of America article. And Dennis and I also spoke about it at an Ecological Society of America conference about the same time. At the same time, we also brought up this notion that was pretty much new still, that for ecosystems, humans are keystone species, or actually used to be. 
in a lot of ecosystems, keystone species, meaning that we have, for the longest time, played a direct role in the maintenance of our ecosystems through different kinds of management, of using the plants, of pruning the plants, with another word known as coppicing, where you cut the plants down to right at ground level. And then, of course, a lot of people lately, especially where I'm at here in California, have been talking a lot about ancestral California Indian fire management. And so all these things we did in a sustainable way, for the most part, that played a direct role in maintaining the ecosystem. So we're just as important as saguaro cacti are to the Sonoran Desert. We're just as important as redwood trees are to Northern California and so on. And so, like I said, Dennis and I pursued these ideas. I kept writing about it and publishing about it. And it's taken on more of a life of its own, this notion of concentricity and concentric ecology. At some point, I'd like to expand the article and, and put together a book about it and try to bring together around concentric ecology examples from different indigenous communities from North America, where in the act of their trying to either maintain their ancestral land management practices or revitalize them, they are maintaining and revitalizing their own cultures. They're revitalizing their relationships to their landscapes. They're bringing back their languages as a result through these practices. And when a culture's language is revitalized, then that worldview that influences the land management practice also comes back. And as a result, then Native peoples can play a direct role in in healing and mending some of these things that we have been doing to our landscapes here in North America, especially for the last couple of hundred years. I would love to see that happen, at least see the beginnings of it. You know, an example of this is when I was speaking with some young folks up on the Puget Sound, Nokomish people, and they were talking about bringing back their seagoing canoe traditions. And in the process of learning, relearning how to build these canoes, they had to relearn how to collect the proper kind of cedar for the canoes. They had to relearn the ceremony around collecting the cedar. They had to relearn the language that goes with the ritual and ceremony of collecting the different plants required for building these canoes. In the process, over several years, these young people led a sort of revitalization of this entire culture. And so that's what can happen when we start with something small, like I want to relearn how to build a traditional canoe and in the, in the process, bring back the whole land management practice. I love the recognition of people as keystone species because it really recognizes the 
It speaks to the importance of our role in supporting and maintaining the health of our biocultural systems. And that stands out to me as really differing from mainstream environmentalism's narratives and views that humans are by default bad and causes negative impacts for the environment. And therefore, we need less human contributions and anthropogenic change and maybe need to fence off particular areas that are off limits for people. And also the state of keystone species often are seen as indicators of the health of their ecosystems. So maybe this is a broad question and can't be generalized, but I wonder if you think people still are and can be recognized as keystone species today. Is it just that people have fallen out of this role or are people no longer keystone species because of the different ways that people relate to the land? We can be if a couple of things are are changed. There is a an edited book. I contributed a chapter to this book. And what happened is the editors got a bunch of us writers together for three days in Crested Butte in Colorado to mull over together our concepts of wilderness and wild. And during the the dialogue at one point I said, you know, in, in my people's language and also in pretty much every indigenous language I've ever come across, there's no word for wild or wilderness in these languages. So therefore our worldviews don't perceive ourselves as separate from the natural world. We, like with a concentric approach, we see ourselves as a part of it. We're directly related to it. And so I wrote that chapter focused on that concept. And this notion of wilderness and from the you know Western perspective implies pieces of the land that, like you said, we are not a part of. It implies areas where we perceive ourselves as not belonging there, as alien to this landscape. And so as a result, we stay away from it or we backpack into wilderness areas here in North America. And as they, they suggest, you know, we leave only footprints. Unfortunately, this has, this concept has influenced how the Western modern society perceives our relationship to the natural, to the wild, as something that is alien and separate from us. And so it causes modern human beings, for the most part, to ignore our role in maintaining natural systems. So we can just forget about it and let other people take care of it. Let those people from the Sierra Club take care of it or those environmentalists, quote unquote, take care of it. It's not my job, a lot of modern people think, to take care of the landscape of the of ecosystems. And so when I said earlier, we can change, we can maybe start to change our language around talking about ecosystems, talking about the land, talking about us, our own selves as human beings. When we give a name to something, as Zen Scott Mamaday 
suggested in his book, The Names, we give it beingness. We give it life. We bring it into the real. And so maybe we can change the definition of wild or stop even using the notion of wilderness or change the notion of wilderness where it's a place where humans are actually a part of. When we are keystone species in a place, that means that implies that we have a responsibility to maintaining that place, that ecosystem, that landscape. This goes counter to so much of, of Western thinking because our society is predominantly a rights-based society where we have a right to do whatever we want to as long as we're you know, not breaking our law or hurting somebody. And so I have a right to buy a big gas-guzzling SUV as long as I can afford it and you know not hurting anybody, as opposed to from an indigenous perspective, can we change this notion of our relationship to ecosystems to one of responsibility where my actions, my choices impact things around me, impacts generations 20, 30 years from now. It's my responsibility then, therefore, to make sure that my actions and choices don't negatively impact everything around me and those systems down the road. That's a very indigenous cultural perspective of responsibility as opposed to a right to do something. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems like there are very critical worldview and relational shifts that many of us need to make in order to support our collective healing. And we also need to unpack what it means when people predominantly see, quote unquote, anthropogenic change as inherently bad. Because from my view, every being co-contributes to change around it. So it's more so what types of impact that we're going to have. And from your book, Eating the Landscape, you write, most Native people aren't comfortable with the idea of memory banking or preserving Indigenous knowledge. It is perceived as something akin to pickling it, end quote. I had never thought of this analogy of how preserving knowledge is like bottling it up and pickling it, but that really resonates for me. And I would love it if you could expand on the resistance against pickling and preserving indigenous knowledge, as in how can people better understand what indigenous knowledges are and the forms that they take and how they are stewarded and co-created and co-transformed through the sentiment that knowledge, as seen through the lens of concentric ecology, has a sort of liveliness that refuses to be contained or calcified. Yeah, this is directly connected to how indigenous peoples largely transfer, reproduce, and share our knowledge. It's largely based on what's known as the oral tradition, where knowledge is passed down through the generations, shared with each other by talking with each other through in ritual, in ceremony, in our 
origin stories and sometimes our stories about plants, our knowledge about plants. That's why in the book Iwigada, I tried to include as many stories about the plants as possible because these stories themselves are examples of things that are alive. Stories shared through voice is a reflection of a medium that is itself energy and has life when we speak. We are moving breath. Breath is everything that permeates around the universe. Breath is how partly how the concept of Iwigada is defined. It, you know, part of the definition of Iwigada is breath is energy. People who like Star Wars can think of it as you know, the force. It's mana. You know, from Eastern traditions, chi, perhaps, but it's all this shared energy that permeates through everything and everybody. And when we speak, we are moving that energy. When we speak our traditions, our origin stories, our coyote stories, our knowledge about plants, we are moving and sharing that energy. And this is why... When this kind of knowledge is written or even just recorded, um, like in a, a film or a digital recording, it stops the, that particular knowledge at that moment in place. And its life stops at that time. Indigenous narrative Indigenous oral, oral traditions are constantly in flux. When anthropologists and other people talk about how Native peoples used to do this, how we used to know this stuff, that drives people like me crazy. Mm -hmm. When I'm teaching my American Indian Studies classes, I'm constantly reminding my students, don't talk about us in the past tense. We're still here. We're still transferring our knowledge. We're still constantly updating it. Mm -hmm. Whenever my family, I you know, think of it in, in the, you bring up the Eating the Landscape book. There's a section in there when I talk about my, my mother and my, my aunts and so on getting together to cook, you know, a, a ceremonial meal. And they were constantly basically debating and arguing over, you know, how to best make this certain, you know, salsa, this certain kind of food and so on. That is a part of this living process that I'm talking about. If that were written down in a recipe book that none of my family members ever had access to, there was no recipe books, it would just be this static dead energy, this static dead knowledge. But when the knowledge is passed on and transferred and argued about every, you know, a few times a year, then that's part of the living knowledge. That's part of its beingness. Part of that also came from when a bunch of my students were meeting with the Hopi elder and they were asking him, why don't you just record your knowledge? Because he was telling them that he was the last member of his clan. And when he passed, all of his knowledge would go with him because 
Like mine, the Hopi are a, a matrilineal society. Knowledge can only be passed down through the mother's lineage. And they never had a daughter. And so his knowledge would not be passed down. And the students, my students were asking him, why don't you just record this knowledge somehow? And he said, because it would kill it. It needs mm. to be transferred verbally. It needs to be alive when it's spoken and when it's heard. And so that's where that idea came from about how for Native peoples, we just really are opposed to storing this knowledge in like a, in a form of pickling. <laughs> yeah. I've shared several conversations with incredible people in the past, including this one now as well, which have really helped me to see knowledge as alive, as a relation, knowledge as being something that is co-produced with the coming together of the people who steward it, and knowledge as something that, especially when passed through the form of orature, is given more room to enliven and shapeshift with time and place and community, even though Western culture might seen orature as less credible and less formal and therefore less valued. And so in conjunction with your remark that indigenous knowledge is necessarily local, meaning they are collectively diverse, relational, and ever-changing, all of this leads me to question the Western values of objectivity, universality, and generalizability across time and place as the indicators of credibility. So I guess I'm curious what you think in regards to what makes it so difficult for Western cultures and institutionalized educational systems to be able to grasp and value and honor the complexity of knowledges that cannot be framed or affixed as some timeless truths. I think about the possibilities of maybe deeper desires of domination and mastery maybe playing some roles, but what does this all spark for you? It reminds me of one of my favorite quips or phrases, whatever the word is in English, which isn't my first language, by the way. But you know, when I'm teaching about this very concept to my students, I remind them it's really, really difficult to be a traditional Apache in Vermont because the landscape is totally different. I'll never forget the first time I went to New England because I'm I'm you know I'm a I'm a southwesterner if you can imagine the landscape of the southwest and and I remember going to New England the first time and feeling this deep unease because there were too many damn trees mm -hmm. I felt like someone was always sneaking up on me <laughs> you can't even you can't see anywhere all you see is just trees and my point here is that Native knowledge, indigenous knowledge, is unique to the culture and that culture's relationship to their landscape. That relationship includes having observed the plants, the animals, the movements of the stars, the varying seasonal changes over time for thousands of years. And over that time, developing a kind of practical knowledge which has become sacred because it works over deep sets of time, 
associated only with that landscape. So imagine being an Ohlone from where I'm at here in the Bay Area. Everything of what it means to be Ohlone, everything connected to that particular identity and set of knowledge only works with the landscape and the seasons and even the star alignments and the tides, in this case, here in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can't transfer that knowledge to Texas. You can't change it or transfer it even to another coastal system like, say, you know, the Chesapeake Bay because it's a whole different ecosystems. And when scholars, when Western scholars try to overgeneralize about native knowledge, quote-unquote, in general, they're really doing a disservice to the complexity and sophistication of what is required for a particular culture in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas to have adapt to that place over centuries, thousands of years. Consider how long indigenous peoples have been observing and mapping this landscape in North America. If we take a conservative view, native peoples have been in North America for you know, 40,000 years. Some of us, including myself, pushed that, those numbers even further back to you know, sometimes 100,000 years. But that's another debate, another conversation. Compare even then 40,000 years to just maybe a little over 200 years that Western biologists and botanists and so on have been studying the North American landscape. It's quite the difference with regards to the set of knowledge required to operate and understand fully what happens in a particular landscape. And Western scientists are just starting to recognize the complexity and sophistication of American Indian knowledge with regards to ecosystems, land management. Even in our some of our stories, they're finding references to past geologic events, references to volcanic eruptions, references to full movements of rivers. You know, where they've actually changed course as a result of a geologic event. The problem, well, part of this, this um, disparity is that Western science has been too arrogant to recognize that their approach to understanding and explaining natural systems is just another kind of philosophy. People like Newton and people of his era didn't refer to themselves as scientists. They referred to themselves as natural philosophers. So the point here is that Western science is just a kind of philosophy. And when it abuts against an indigenous way of explaining how natural systems operate, their arrogance doesn't allow them to, to see the different ways that indigenous peoples have classified and categorized over thousands of years these natural systems, and also the differences in how we've transferred and shared that knowledge.
This really puts into question what people value as knowledge altogether or see as quote-unquote formal education. And what I've been drawn to sit with is how the dominant Western culture seems to more so validate things after they've become compartmentalized and formalized. For instance, how food and agriculture is seen as separate from medicine, is seen as separate from the private family life, separate from public governance, which is outside and on top of, separate from embedded community experiences and learning, separated from structured formal education, separate from spirituality and mythology, separate from scientific knowledge, separate from human societies and cultures, separated from nature and quote-unquote the wild, which are concepts perpetuated by some of the most established and respected environmental organizations seen as the leaders of the field. And I have a hard time articulating this, but I hope you can sense what I'm trying to get at. It almost feels like what has been considered advancement or civilizing of society has just been a sort of rearrangement and siloing and simplification of the entanglements and complexities of a community, in conjunction, of course, with the reduction of what wealth means into more monolithic and symbolic currencies. This could go in so many different directions, but what do you feel caught to share as you think about these dominant structures of compartmentalization when you apply your more relational lens of concentric ecology? Well, yeah, this Western approach is it's, it's about reductionism. You know, it's, we're constantly in Western, the Western scientific approach to studying the natural world has been to reduce it to its smallest molecular level. And as a result, it's led to dangerous developments where we have genetically modified organisms that we're calling food, where we have, we're growing corn that has genetic manipulation in it that's you know from fish you know where in the world did they come up with this idea that we can somehow genetically mix fish genes with corn genes so that those corn genes can better fight against attack you know parasitic and fungal attacks on it that's the result of this reductionist approach to studying the natural world and this studying is always directly connected to commodification which is another part of the problem where science is diverted away from the pure and i say science i mean western science is diverted away from the pure study of natural systems so that we can better understand it to now where it's always constantly directly connected to profit and when that happens, everything becomes a commodity resulting in genetically modified organisms because we can make a profit off of it, meaning Monsanto and Archer Daniels Midland and, and so on. But it's dangerous because if we, right now in the United States, we go want to buy some corn at the grocery store, we're really just are given a choice of one or two varieties of genetically modified corn in a grocery store. What happens, and it's going to happen sooner or later, and I'll give you an example in a second about how this sort of thing has happened, is that because our systems are constantly changing and climate change is increasing this change, at some point, 
there's going to be some kind of parasite or fungus or something else is going to attack those two varieties of genetic, genetically modified corn and the Western food system is not going to have any kind of way to deal with this. People are going to go hungry. Just look what's already happening with the war in Ukraine and the the cut in the movement of grains out of Ukraine is causing even more hunger around the world. So by way of an example, there's an old friend of mine, some of your listeners may have heard of him, Gary Nabhan, who's written a lot about these same subjects as well. And in his younger days, he had collected a bunch of heirloom sunflower seeds from down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon with the Havasupai people. And not knowing that a couple years later, there was going to be this fungus attacking sunflower seeds across the United States. Fortunately, Gary had this variety of sunflower seeds that he had collected in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And the you know different labs were able to cross the Havasupai sunflower seeds with the dominant sunflower seeds that are grown across the country and saved the crops. And so my point there is that when we reduce to the smallest molecular level, we, as a result, ignore the large diversity around us. When we ignore the diversity around us, it becomes stagnant, it shrivels up, it disappears, and we further reduce our own web of life that we are so dependent on. Modern technology is rapidly causing this to happen, even within societies where we have so many people right now are thinking that, you know, when, when they're doing their whatever you want to call it, their tick snap insta tweets and that sort of thing, looking at their little phones, you know, thinking they're engaging in digital communities. They're actually disengaging from the real world, from the real natural. And as a result, we're killing all the natural systems around us because we're ignoring it. We need to engage in natural systems. We need to not reduce, but to expand our awareness of everything going on around us because then we are better and more connected to it. We build and expand relationships and our own sense of self when we can do this. I think I might have diverted from your original question, but that's where my mind took me. Yeah, thank you. I always appreciate these tangents that my guests take me, so I appreciate this. And yeah, we understand diversity to lend itself to resilience. So it's really important to note how the process of commodification for mass markets directly drives processes of homogenization in all forms. So these realizations are really important as we consider how we might heal our communities and planetary bodies beyond simple practices and simple fixes. And then to weave eating the landscape back in here, you've noted that for your peoples, 
eating is not just about nourishment, but it means so much more. Can you elaborate more on what eating the landscape really signifies and refers to, and how all of these layered meanings of eating and food show how deeply embedded and entangled your identities are with your values, relationality, spirituality, stories, and the land, and so forth? Yeah, eating. I came up with the idea eating the landscape because when you know I was thinking about our our indigenous ancestral food ways and they are not it's not just about food it's not just about nutrition eating the landscape is about this large interconnected matrix of our relationship to place before that the idea had come about when I was a program officer for a international foundation. And part of my role as a Native person was to make contact with Indigenous communities in different parts of the world and find ways to get funding to them so that they can actually continue their ancestral land management practices. But the funding was limited. And so the executive director asked the four of us, or four of us program officers, indigenous to different parts of the world, to focus our our funding. And for me, it was I, got, I was thinking and realizing, you know, we all have to eat. And so I'm going to focus my funding on ancestral food ways that enhanced the diversity of local landscapes. And that's where this notion of eating the landscape came from, because as as indigenous peoples getting our ancestral foods through either hunting, gathering, or agriculture, or fishing, it only works and it's only sustainable when we do this in a way that actually enhances the diversity of the places where we're hunting and growing foods and fishing and so on. If you look at uh, my people's agricultural fields, they would not look anything like you would see in Iowa or Indiana or something. There was no straight rows of only corn. There are actually several species of useful plants growing in and around the cornfield or the bean fields or the squashes or the chilies and that sort of thing. Because we look at this, this uh, an, an agricultural field as a place that is full of diverse life that reflects our relationship to that particular landscape that actually returns nutrients to the soils so that we don't have to, after the harvest, fill the soils with petroleum-based chemicals and that sort of thing and, and fertilizers. But the idea expands upon that. It's not just about the practical. When we grow these particular foods, we also are growing our relatives. We're growing plants and so on that are our aunts and uncles. When we eat these foods, we are also ingesting our own identities. 
because our stories are directly connected to the landscapes where we are growing these foods, where we are harvesting, you know, wild crafting, where we're catching fish and where we're going out hunting. These are this larger, multi-level understanding of our identity connected to this particular place and our responsibility towards maintaining it, which connects to ritual and ceremony. Our ceremonies, our rituals are not only about honoring our relationship to place and recognizing it. It's Our ceremonies are also about recreating the places. Because for most indigenous origins, we do not believe that the creation happened once. We believe that we played a direct role in the creation sometimes, or we came afterwards. And part of our responsibility is to make sure the creation continues. It's not, it's a, it's a never ending process. And so it's part of our responsibility through the growing of food, through the connection of this, these foods and these plants and animals to our own identities reflected in our ceremonies and our regalia in our language to make sure that the creation continues. It's our responsibility to continue this because if we don't, then the creation will stop and then everything will stop. That's what eating the landscape is about. When I eat, when I, in my own garden here where I live, when I grow different kinds of of beans and chiles and corn from that my people have been growing for who knows how many thousands of years, I am continuing all of that process, all of that creation. Well, this cues me beautifully into my next question, which is, especially in the recent years, regenerative agriculture has been portrayed as the solution to climate change and planetary healing, in large part, I think, because climate change has been reductively framed, first and foremost, as a problem of an imbalance of atmospheric carbon levels. And so farming techniques that are focused on soil carbon sequestration might seem like just the fix that we need. I personally have contentions with these practices being labeled regenerative because I find them to be myopic, especially when a lot of times they're practiced in ways that perpetuate social injustices and power differentials, even when they are marketed as fair trade at the global level. But that aside, I respect that, of course, a lot of these these practices are vital and enriching for agrobiodiversity. And many even attribute the roots of regenerative agriculture to indigenous farming, though keeping in mind an awareness of how entangled indigenous food systems are with all other aspects of life, governance and community. I'm curious what concerns you've noted as the limitations of regenerative agriculture and being able to heal our planet. Well, it's another form of this gentrified Western appropriation of indigenous ways of doing things, of indigenous knowing. When we call these things permaculture or regenerative agriculture, it's ignoring the origins of native indigenous practices that have been going on for thousands of years. And they, like we see a lot in 
these kinds of new age, you know, appropriation of indigenous knowledge. They pick and choose what they decide is going to work best for them. It's like, uh, I never forget uh, Colleen Sisk Franco. He's a, she's a Wintu elder from up here by Mount Shasta, Northern California, talking about how Westerners, Americans in particular, you know, they, they feel like they, it's just so easy just to sort of pick and choose whatever spirituality they want to appropriate. And it's like, like a kid walking down the cereal aisle of a grocery store, you know, and there's only one box of Wintu she said. My point here is that when I read these articles and so on about regenerative agriculture, a lot of times when they do admit to their appropriation of indigenous knowledge, they oftentimes will bring up this notion of the three sisters way of planting, where you will plant corn on a little hill, surround it with planting of beans. And then, you know, around that plant some squash seeds and they'll symbiotically you know support each other through the growing season well that is an appropriation from northeast native people's ways of growing corn and beans and squash and like we talked about earlier it's unique to just that landscape it only works in the northeast or only works best in the Northeast. You can kind of make it work in other parts of the world, other parts of the country, but you really have to work at it. It doesn't work in California. It doesn't work in the Southwest because the land, the, the ecosystem, the rain patterns and so on, and even the, the movement of the sun is just so different. And so, yes, I, I appreciate what regenerative agriculturalists are trying to do. I just wish that they would better understand how they've appropriated indigenous knowledge and tailor what they're trying to do to their unique landscapes, whether it's in the Pacific Northwest or in Texas or in North Carolina, and fully and better understand the indigenous practices in those specific places as opposed, as opposed to trying to have this one sort of Western frame of what they think is indigenous agriculture. Mm. And this again goes back to recognizing the limitations of universalizing knowledge and coming up with these sorts of one-size-fits-all prescriptive practices for how to best caretake for every diverse landscape. And while to bring in some lessons of inspiration for our closing, in Ivigora, you highlight and honor 80 plants revered by the indigenous peoples of North America for their nourishing, healing, and symbolic qualities. Having engaged with so many different medicine peoples, farmers, botanists, and so on from different cultures, what have been some of the most enriching and common denominator learnings that you've had while honoring such a vast diversity of the communities and the land bases that they each come from? Well, part of, you know, part of that is recognizing my own limitations. I'm a trained ethnobotanist and grew up with all sorts of plant knowledge, but you know, there's only so many things I can learn. I never forget when I was communicating with uh, Judy Dow. She's Abenaki from up in Vermont, and I was asking her 
to send me a, you know, give me a list of her cultures and her own personal favorite plants and so on that I can include in the book and to expand on that, to tell me, you know, how she uses these plants and so on. And, and she included blueberries. And like most people, you know, I, I think of blueberries as something that, you know, those, those great little dark blue fruits that are just so tasty when they're ripe and, and that's their most important use. But she just really opened my eyes to the possibilities of blueberries, that they're more than just a sweet sort of dessert-like fruit. They're, they are a medicine. They are good for, they can use, be used for basket weaving. They play an important, important role for vascular health. And, you know, she just, you know, laid out this long list of how her and her people relate to and, and understand blueberries. And so, you know, in the process of, of compiling just those 80 plants, you know, my knowledge of plants just multiplied, you know, many, many times. I would love to do another book and just see how much more my knowledge of plants can, can multiply. It's just, you know, the point here is that there's this never-ending set of, of knowledge that is held in the libraries of cultures around the world that we can have access to if we just allow ourselves and ask more questions and expand our community of plant knowledge. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? So if you're talking about recently, then there's a book that I reviewed for the Western Historical Quarterly a few months ago. It's called Gardening at the Margins by Gabriel Valle. It's V-A-L-L-E. And it's it's really just a rewriting of his his PhD dissertation and but it was just incredible because he spent time years with mostly Latinx gardeners in this one predominantly Latinx neighborhood in San Jose, California. And you know following their building of just really unique community of gardeners in San Jose, and in the process of, of speaking with these folks and gardening with them and sharing food from their gardens and so on and watching them interact, they have created this amazing 
community form of resilience and resistance to the established agricultural and food system. And it's it's just an incredible, enlightening, and inspiring book to read. And that's something for more recent. You know, for the longest time, when I'm I find myself stuck with how to explain something, I find myself always going back to one of my favorite writers, N. Scott Mamaday. He's Kiowa, and him as Pueblo writer. And particularly, there's two books, The Man Made of Words, and another one called The Names. Thank you for these recommendations. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Well, as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at saying no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, you know, we, it's so easy to... Is be saying yes to every kind of invitation to do a, you know, get involved in a project or who knows what. And you find yourself getting pulled in all these different directions and you got to get to the point where you could just say no. Because the more you can say no and focus on just the things that are most important to you with regards to projects and so on, then you remember your own needs and your own self. At the same time, I practice gigong every day. I'm always in my garden, even this time of year, messing around in my garden. Just earlier, before doing this interview, because I wanted to center my own thoughts, you know, I pulled out my classical guitar. I've been playing classical guitar since I was six years old mm. and just played for about 45 minutes. And also, you know, I've been playing cello for quite a while. Those two things just... You know, I just can turn off everything around me and focus on just the the sound of the instruments. Beautiful. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? Well, you know, I think it's my students. I teach at California State University, East Bay. Our campus is resides on traditional ancestral Chochenyo Ohlone. Um, land. It's the most diverse campus in the country. My students represent, you know, who knows how many different cultures. At the same time, because it's a a state, it's part of the California State University system, so many of our students are low income. Many of them are first generation college students. Almost all of them work either full time or part time and have responsibilities that can easily pull them away from their studies, yet they are determined to get their degrees. And I am determined to help them do that because I see myself in them. I see the struggle. I see the determination. And I am there with them when they achieve their goals and we can celebrate together when they finish their degree, even when they finish a class, when they finish a semester successfully, I just, you know, I just draw so much inspiration from them. And, you know, as a teacher, I'm not just passing on knowledge to them. We're sharing knowledge together. And that just, you know, keeps me going. You know, I'm in my 60s and 
not ready to retire yet as long as my students can keep uh, helping me engage with, with, with them. And we do this as a team. At the same time, the other thing that inspires me are native communities. I'm the tribal liaison and NAGPRA coordinator for our campus. And so I am in constant contact with the native communities here in California who are increasing their efforts to revitalize their ancestral practices. And I get to be in the middle of helping them do that. And so those two things are just, you know, they just keep me going, give me a reason to wake up every morning. Mm. Well, to our listener, Green Dreamer, we are wrapping up here, but we will have more links to Enrique's work as well as references mentioned in this episode linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. And for now, Enrique, it's been a huge honor to speak with you here. And we're so grateful that you said yes to this interview. So thank you so much for this nourishing conversation and all you've inspired in us. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Find as many ways to engage in actual human nature-based community. Expand your definition of community beyond people and to include all the natural workings around you. And during that process, take time to stop, to pause, and be aware of that large community around you because we're killing it because we are ignoring it. This conversation was made possible through the direct support of our listeners like you. To receive my personal reflections on these conversations, get access to our bonus live podcasts and gatherings, and support our show to continue, join us on Patreon today at greendreamer.com support. As a small independent show, we also really appreciate your five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share your favorite episodes. Our song featured today is Flute Dance by Dr. Enrique Salmon himself. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. And I'm your host, Kamea Chain. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.